morning, on this Christmas morning, we again come to God's Word to study it together, to think about its application into our lives. And this morning, we think, in, particularly in light of Christ's coming and his birth, and as we'll look to Luke 1 in a moment to learn more about what Christ has done for us and how he's revealed himself to us by taking on flesh. But let's ask the Lord's help as we look to his word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the truth you've revealed in Scripture. Lord, I pray as we open it up that as we unfold your word that you would give us simple people light, that you would reveal Christ to us in the Scriptures. We pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, we thank you for the word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we thank you for the inspired word of God. Would you make us more like Christ through it this morning? And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Well, imagine for a moment a hypothetical scenario. Imagine you sinned against the Lord, and then you immediately lost your ability to hear or to speak. And you became deaf and mute. And then an angel told you that for the next nine months you would be this way. The Lord's hand of discipline coming upon you in an in an unmistakably clear fashion, a rebuke from the Lord. And so now, in silence and in solitude, you have nothing but time to think. For nine months, perhaps you might be able to find some work that required no speaking or uh, no hearing or listening ability, but your life would really be utterly upended by such a thing. Imagine what you would do in your utter silence. All that time without any communication. Think about how you would use that time of quiet in your own head. Certainly you'd have plenty of time to think about what you have done. You'd have plenty of time to meditate upon your sin against the Lord. To think about how you could mend your ways in the future. Certainly you'd have time to read the scriptures and to think about your own life in relation to God's word. Thinking about your act of rebellion against God and seeking the Lord's forgiveness in your heart. Well, one ancient Israelite had such a time out from the Lord, nine months or more of disciplinary silence and quiet. What was his sin? His sin was a failure to believe good news given to him, a failure to trust an angelic voice issuing a promise from the Lord. This good news was this, that the long-awaited Messiah was soon to come and his son would go before him. This man's name, of course, was Zacharias, or as some versions might call Zachariah. And on this Christmas morning, as we continue to consider and think about God's incarnation, the coming of God the Son and taking on flesh and being born in a stable, I'd like us to consider the role of Zacharias and really the message of Zacharias found in Luke chapter 1. If you've got a copy of God's Word in front of you, I'd invite you to open it up to Luke chapter 1, the third gospel of the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. In the account of Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth and the birth of their son is all contained in Luke chapter chapter 1. So look at Luke chapter 1, beginning with me in verse 5. Look at your own Bible there, verse 5. It says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements 
of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were advanced in years. I think it's always worth mentioning about Zacharias and Elizabeth that they're two examples of righteous, godly Jews living in Jesus' day. They were an example of faithful Israelites living by the word of God and anxiously waiting for the coming Messiah. In fact, as we'll see this morning, they knew God's word quite well. Zacharias, being a priest and a student, he was also a teacher of God's law. Not all of the Jews of Jesus' day were of the bankrupt faith of the Pharisees. There were some, like Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were righteous, who were God-fearing. They were blameless, locking in all of the ways of the Lord. This, of course, doesn't mean they were sinless. As we'll see in a moment, Zacharias had a crisis of faith or a time when he did not believe a direct revelation from the Lord. And yet, overall, they were righteous. And yet, at the same time, they were working through a hardship. Elizabeth was barren. Despite even years of praying for a child, God had closed her womb. At no fault of their own, God had refused to grant their prayer request or their prayer for a child. And of course, we must acknowledge that this occasionally happens. We may live a righteous life and pray for a certain thing and God may not give it. And that was the case for Zacharias you know, Zacharias and Elizabeth up until a point. Now look at verse 8 in your Bible with me. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense, incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. So here, Zacharias is carrying out his priestly duties inside the temple when this angel appears to him. Verse 12 continues, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers back to the children, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for, for the Lord." So here, from the very lips of an angel, Zacharias is promised a son, and that son was told to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He would prepare the hearts of the people to receive her Lord. And Zacharias then responds in unbelief. Look at verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So here Zacharias demands evidence. He says, excuse me, angel sir, uh, how can these things be? Do you know my wife? Do you know how old she is? She's quite old. The angel says then in verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the very presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. 
And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that, they, that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it was immediately apparent that something extra, extraordinary occurred inside the temple chamber that day. After performing his priestly duty of offering sacrifice or offering incense, burning incense before the Lord, the people outside were waiting for Zacharias to return and offer this, this Aaronic blessing from number six, as he would have, would have been the regular custom. But after the delay, when Zacharias did come out, he was mute. So Zacharias then returns home, and it's quite plausible that he communicated all of this somehow to his wife Elizabeth. We'll see later he writes on a tablet to communicate. So we know that after Zacharias arrived home, then Elizabeth became pregnant. In verses 23 through 38, the angel Gabriel prophesies to Mary that she would be the one to actually bear the Savior. See the report to Mary, skipping ahead to verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her, own, in her old age, and she who has, called, who has been called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Note the difference between Mary's response and Zacharias' response. Mary believes the angel's words. And then this chapter closes again by returning once again to Elizabeth and Zechariah. Look ahead at verse 57. It says, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, no, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him to be called. Notice that they're, they're making signs to Zacharias in verse 62. That's because he was not only mute, he was not only unable to speak, he was also unable to hear. Back in verse 22, it was said of Zacharias that he remained mute. That word mute can also mean deaf. It's used that way in Luke 7.22 a little later to refer exactly to death. So unable to speak and unable to hear, but interpreting their signs, John called for a tablet. Look at verse 
63 now. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. So after nine months of silence, nine months of pondering, nine months to celebrate the news of this angel, and nine months to reflect upon the words of Scripture and the promises to Israel, when Zacharias' tongue is loosed, the Holy Spirit then fills his mouth with praise. Zacharias opened his mouth, and the meditations of his heart just poured out. Meditations directed upon the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit, inspired words. Zacharias, in essence, belts out an inspired hymn in the, in the verses ahead. And this inspired hymn of praise is really what I'd like us to focus on this morning. Because December 25th comes once every year, and because we have such a wonderful tradition of celebrating the birth of Christ and the Incarnation annually, there's always a temptation for us to lose sight of the magnificence and the importance of this particular day. And the significance and the uniqueness of the Incarnation really cannot be overstated. Along with Jesus' death and his resurrection, the most monumental event in all of human history is the Lord Jesus Christ being birthed into this world. The very division of all of human history in our dating system is built upon Christ's coming. We say B.C., before Christ, or A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Think about it. Our dating system is, is built around this incarnation and the coming Lord. And judging by Zacharias' declaration of praise, this significance was not lost on him. What we find in Zacharias' upcoming words really portrays his wonderful understanding of the importance of this event. Zacharias' words in verses 67 through verse 79 are really one of those places in Scripture where we just find multiple threads and themes in Scripture coming together. Threads of prophetic predictions now coming to fruition. Zacharias' words here just drip with Old Testament Scripture references and allusions to the Old Testament. So here we find this faithful Israelite saturated in the scriptures, and now he's just erupting in praise. After the loosening of his tongue, his heart erupts, and what comes out of his heart is just the Bible flowing out of his mouth. So after years of studying and teaching of God's law, and after nine months of quiet reflection, Zacharias' words are full of the Old Testament. The opening line of his hymn, or his note of praise, begins like this. Look at verse 68. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The first word, blessed. In Latin, that term reads benedictus. Perhaps you've heard of that. That's what this, this hymn of Zacharias, these verses, is typically referred to, or how it's been referred to in church history. It's the benedictus. Zacharias, again, opens his mouth and prays, blessing the Lord God of Israel. In the 
reference to Israel here is fitting because the rest of the hymn focuses extensively on the promises given to Israel. Promises coming to fruition now in Zacharias' day. And so when the hymn here begins with a note of praise, then what follows is reasons to praise Yahweh. And so let's read this this inspired hymn from Zacharias together in, in its entirety. Look with me beginning at verse 68. This is what Zacharias opens his mouth saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited He has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteous, in righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. If I could choose one word to describe this hymn of praise of Zacharias, I think it would be the word redemption. this, This hymn is praising God for his work of redemption, the redemption of his people. And what seems abundantly clear in this passage is that Zacharias is focusing on the redemption of Israel. He speaks in the first person plural. He says, we, referring to Israel, and includes himself in that camp. He speaks of the house of David and the promises given to our father Abraham and showing mercy to our fathers. Actually, the closest explicit references to Gentiles like us in this passage would be the references to Israel's enemies in verses 71 and 74. Israel's enemies were always Gentiles, of course. So that raises an important question for us Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is how do we fit into this hymn? How does this relate to us as non-Israelites? Well, of course it does. And I hope this morning to show you that as see how this blessing and this redemption of Israel was always meant to be a blessing to the entire world. But this hymn of praise, I think, can be divided into two parts. The first is the praise for redemption coming in verses 68 through 75. And then secondly, the forerunner's role in redemption in beginning in verse 76 through 79. The first eight, the first eight verses focus on reasons for praising God. And perhaps a bit surprisingly to us, they focus on the political and national redemption of Israel. And then in the final four verses, the, the, the focus shifts upon the spiritual blessings of Israel. So let's begin by focusing on Zacharias's praise for redemption. Again, in verses 68 through 75, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for, and here comes the basis for Zacharias' praise, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. In my mind, to say that someone visited you really doesn't communicate much 
in our modern parlance. Now, the verb visit is rather sterile in English, rather dry. It just communicates that someone came and went. But in the original language here, it means to, to come and to visit someone with great care and to express deep concern for them, to meet their needs. And so Zacharias is here rejoicing that God has visited us. And again, the us refers to Israel. And furthermore, it's interesting to note that Zacharias is using the past tense. God has visited us. Remember, this is on his son's eighth day of life, the eighth day after being born, the day of his circumcision. The Messiah, Jesus, hadn't even been born yet. And yet here is Zacharias so certain that these things will come that he's speaking in the past tense. Before he had doubted the word of the angel to him, but after nine months of waiting and then seeing the birth of his son, there was no more doubts in Zacharias's mind. The angel's word to him was now as certain as past history. Zacharias's son, John the Baptist, would be the forerunner of the Messiah, which meant that the Messiah was soon to come and the Messiah would accomplish redemption for his people. See again in verse 68, it says, here's Zacharias again speaking in the past tense, the Lord has accomplished redemption. It's a done deal. It's been accomplished. And so Zacharias' faith in what is coming is unshakable at this point. He continues in verse 69, he says, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. A horn of salvation in the Old Testament, a horn is a common metaphor for strength or for power. You see, horned animals in ancient Israel had great strength. The expression here pictures the, the horn of a powerful beast lowering its head and pushing someone, driving out their enemies. So the horn of salvation is one who delivers, one who saves. In Psalm 18, verse 2, Yahweh is referred to as a horn of salvation. In 1 Samuel 2.10, the godly Hannah prophesied of the coming Messiah or the horn of salvation. She, wrote, she said, Those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his anointed very important word in the Old Testament, Old Testament, anointed. It's the term that, in Hebrew, that is Mashiach. It, of course, means Messiah. And it can be an explicit reference to the coming Messiah, as I believe it is here. It's the horn of the Messiah, the horn of the anointed. And so we also see these two words combined, horn of the anointed, horn of salvation, in Psalm 132. And I think it's an important text, but before we turn there, look one more time at verse 69 in your Bible. Look what it says. He raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. David, his servant. Now turn with me to Psalm 32 and look at... The parallels in this passage, so towards the middle of your Bible, Psalm 132. Psalm 132 is a psalm with, that has strong historic implications for what we call the Davidic covenant. The psalmist writes a prayer for David, which looks ahead also to David's greatest descendant. Psalm 132, and we'll jump in at verse 
10. Psalm 132, verse 10. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away from the face of your anointed. For the Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not depart and will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired its, it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And I will, abundant, I will abundantly bless her provision, and I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests I will also clothe with salvation, and her godly, godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. This is the redemption that the Messiah would accomplish. He would bring rescue, deliverance, redemption, and this redemption would then lead to service. Finally, Israel would be what she was always destined to be, a holy people set apart with holy, righteous lives. And while it would not be right to make an extreme difference between the temporal and the spiritual, I think it would be fair to say that so far, Zacharias has been primarily referring to physical blessing upon Israel. He's praising God for the redemption of Israel, salvation from her enemies, and a salvation that comes from the house of David, from the Messiah. Verse 71 refers to the enemies of Israel, along with rescue from the enemies in verse 74. And again, Zacharias was so confident of all these promises that he spoke of them in the past tense. It's been accomplished. Redemption has been accomplished. He was confident that the great son of David, who he now knew was coming, would certainly take the throne. And that, Abraham, that the Abrahamic blessing would finally be poured out upon Israel after years of derelict leadership and exile in foreign lands and the temple being destroyed and rebuilt and then years of hard-hearted rebellion. So Zacharias was here ready the problem was, Israel in mass was not. Zacharias was righteous, but Israel was not. It seems that Zacharias, what he didn't quite fully understand was that Israel was not ready to receive her king. In just a few short decades, Israel would summarily reject her Messiah, and they would put him to death, delaying all this blessing. They would kill and hang on the tree the Messiah who came to save and redeem them. You see, ancient Israel, like all mankind, has a heart problem. Naturally, we're born with deficient hearts that love ourselves and love our own pleasures more than we love God. Man naturally has a heart to rebel against God in his way, a heart that refuses to worship God and obey his law, and that would rather choose to worship self. And so Israel is not only in need of physical rescue and physical redemption, but she's desperately needed and still needs spiritual rescue as well, which is the topic that Zacharias comes to next. Zacharias now turns to the forerunner's role in redemption. Look at verse 76 there, verse 76. With, he said with these now four final verses, uh, he again shifts his attention to the spiritual blessings that are coming. 
Look at verse 76. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Notice now Zacharias is speaking directly to his infant son. He would be a prophet of the Most High. It's interesting to note that back in verse 32, Mary was told that her son would be the son of the Most High, a a title that communicates deity. He will be God in the flesh. Jesus would be God the Son of the Most High, and John would prepare the way for him. He would be a prophet of the Son of the Most High. He would prepare the way by calling Israel to repentance and declaring to them their need for salvation. And they must make ready their ways. Beginning in verse 77, Zacharias tells of what his own son would do in the future. He will give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, John the Baptist would give individuals the knowledge of salvation and how they could be forgiven of their sins. Zacharias no longer has corporate Israel in mind. He has individuals in mind and personal salvation. And it's interesting to note that neither the Abrahamic or the Davidic covenant nor the Mosaic covenant for that matter or the priestly or the Noahic covenant have a particular emphasis on individuals and spiritual blessing given to individuals. Of course, they have a ramification on those things. But those five covenants primarily have broad sweeping implications for Israel and thence coming out of that for all mankind. But it is the new covenant that is both a corporate and a personal application. It focuses on individuals and individuals' need for salvation, forgiveness from God. I want you to see this about the new covenant with me back in the Old Testament. So please turn towards the middle of your Bible to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, if you find Isaiah, it's the very next book after it. There's many places we could turn to, but look at Jeremiah 31 to see this new covenant on display. When Zechariah referenced the forgiveness of sins, it seems likely that he's thinking directly about Jeremiah, Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 31. Look with me at verse 31 of chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is his prophecy. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, referencing the old covenant, Mosaic covenant, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they'll no longer teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more." So here is God's solution to the problem of man's heart. As a consequence of the fall, man fell into sin and rebellion clear back in the garden. And since then, man's heart is bent upon rebellion. 
But the blessing of the new covenant is the change to all that. It's a new heart. Or or here, a heart branded with the law of God. It's an internal change that produces a love for God and a knowledge and a relationship with God. It's It's something that produces an intrinsic desire to know God and to obey him and to follow his word. You see, the new covenant brings a repentant sinner into personal relationship with the living God. So that, so that they actually knows God. It says they no longer will need to teach one another know, know the Lord because they'll all know the Lord. That's true of the new covenant. And finally, in verse 34, we find reference to the forgiveness of sin. Uh, forgiveness that, of course, we'd say is accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, remember what Jesus said about his own blood, the, the spilling of his own blood on Calvary. He said, this is the And this is the covenant, the new covenant initiated in my blood. And so Zacharias knew that the Savior was needed because of his words back in Luke 1, focusing on forgiveness. So for a final time, make your way back over to Luke 1 and see again those verses in 76, 76 through 78. He says, And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I think verse Verse there, 78, because of his tender mercy, because of God's tender compassion, because of his covenant love for his people, he sends the sunrise from on high. A difficult reference here. I believe it refers to the Messiah. It just refers to a rising star or a rising sun. It's the sunrise from on high. And the Messiah will visit us. Again, he, he will come to us in compassion and, compa- and care for those who are sitting in the shadow of darkness or the shadow of death, lost in darkness. And he says he will guide them into peace, seeming peace with God, spiritual blessings. And as I mentioned earlier, it seems that Zacharias is again focused on Israel throughout this entire passage. And so, so we go, well, what about us? What about us Gentiles? How do we fit in here? Well, I think there's two things that Zacharias just did not address in this hymn, two things that are incredibly relevant to us. Now, the first, perhaps to think of it as a question, is why hasn't Israel experienced this redemption that Zacharias was so certain was coming? He's talking about in the past tense being rescued from their enemies. And if you know anything about Israel's history over the past 2,000 years, we would say they have not been rescued from their enemies in any final sense. And no one could definitely not say of Israel in all of their rejection of their Messiah and their hard-heartedness that they've served God in holiness and righteousness without fear. That's not been true. This is because Israel as a people has never entered the new covenant. They've never come in and enjoyed the blessings, the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. They still have a cold, dead heart that cannot understand God and cannot follow God. Israel is apostate, lacking both the temporal and spiritual blessings that Zacharias describes here. 
Some see this problem in Scripture, and they assume that these physical blessings given to Israel must now be spiritualized and refer to the church someday, in a, somehow in a spiritual sense, and that these promises that were given to these Old Testament Israelite fathers can somehow be interpreted and diverted to the church. But that is not the case. The key to understanding all of this is to understand that Zacharias was not aware of the church age. He was not aware that Israel was still going to reject her Messiah in just a few decades. And it was always God's intention to redeem not only Israel, but also to redeem Gentiles as well. We saw this clear back in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12. They would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But let's close today looking at one other place to see this worldwide intention for God, for Israel, in Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, right in the middle of our Bibles, Isaiah 49. Please turn there with me. This is a prophecy addressed to the servant of Yahweh, the the servant of Yahweh. It's another term for the Messiah, but it's sometimes referred, the servant of of Yahweh can refer to Israel herself, but that's not the case here. Here it's clear that the servant is the Messiah who is redeeming Israel. He will save Jacob along with the whole world. Look at Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 5. And now says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, for the purpose of bringing Jacob back to him, and so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. He's like, he's like it's too small of a thing for you to be only the savior of Israel. You'll be more than that. He says, but instead, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the very ends of the earth. You see, this was God's plan of redemption. His plan from the beginning was for the servant of the house of David to be a blessing and a light to all the nations on the earth. This was the sunrise from on high, as Zacharias referred to So Zacharias was right to speak of redemption accomplished in the past tense. He knew it was coming. It it was certain that the, the redemption was now accomplished because the Messiah was coming and the Messiah would work out this redemption in its own time. Even before Christ was born in Bethlehem and even before he died and was resurrected, it was as good as accomplished. Redemption was accomplished. It has been accomplished. And now we await for this redemption to be applied. Redemption has been accomplished and it needs to be applied. You see, whenever someone bows their knee to Lord Jesus Christ, whenever they come to him in personal faith, this redemption is personally applied to them in the forgiveness of their sins. And one day, as the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31, one day, When Israel herself looks upon the one whom they have pierced, as Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 12 wrote of, they look upon the one whom they've pierced, they will mourn for him as the mourning of or the loss of an only son. You see, one day Israel will mourn over their rejection of the Savior. And on this day, when Israel finally repents, all of the covenant promises will be fulfilled to Israel. 
and fulfilled literally. But at the coming of Christ, and even before his birth, the angel brought good news to Zechariah, news of, a, of this redemption accomplished. It was done. A redemption that would bring to fruition all of these promises given to Israel, promises of physical rescue and promises of spiritual deliverance. But we yet await the full application of this redemption. This, the application of this was put on hold for Israel. It was wide, it's now wide open for individuals to come to Christ, to come to Gentiles. God has set Israel aside in unbelief. That's with the language of Romans 11. He set them aside in unbelief so that the Gentiles may stream in, that the whole Gentile world may now believe in him. But one day this redemption will be applied again to Israel. As we think about all of this wonderful revelation coming together in this ancient priest, Zacharias, rejoicing of all of these things coming to fruition, yet not fully aware of the timing of it. It is accomplished. It is finished. I think for each one of us today, we must ask ourselves, has this redemption been applied to me? Have I been forgiven of my sins? Have I entered the new covenant, which has been initiated by Christ's blood? Do I have this forgiveness? Do I know God the way that everyone in the new covenant should know God? Again, Jeremiah said, there'll be, no, there'll be no need to teach your brother and your neighbor, know the Lord, for we will all know the Lord. That's true of everyone who truly knows Christ. They have an internal love for the Lord. They've been born again by the Spirit of God. God has put his law inside of them. They have a desire and an eagerness to follow the Lord and to love his word. This is this, is this redemption applied to individuals. This is the time that we are currently living in. And the question for you is, has it been applied to your account? Has Christ's redemptive work been applied to you personally? Because it must. This is the great importance of Christmas. Jesus Christ coming into this world to save sinners so that this redemption could be applied to each one of us. So I guess on this Christmas morning, my word to you is make sure that you understand this redemption and that it's been applied to you and you have found forgiveness of sins. Nothing more important on this face on the face of the earth for our short time here on the globe. Make sure this redemption has been applied to you. So with that in mind, let's praise the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this text so much here. Spend so much more time developing these themes, thinking about all that you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for these promises given in the Old Testament, promises fulfilled and yet some to be fully fulfilled, waiting full revelation. Lord, we Praise you for Zacharias's hymn, his clarity on Scripture, his, his model for us of a man who's saturated in the Scriptures. And Lord, we just thank you for his joy expressed in his heart as someone who understood the Old Testament and now rejoices in it, a righteous and faithful Israelite. And so I pray that we would follow him and looking back and seeing Messiah coming and yet also waiting for Messiah to come again. We think of when he will come and reign upon the earth. We think of him putting all of his enemies under his feet, ruling this earth in perfect justice and righteousness. We long for that day. We wait for that day. We long to reign with Christ on the earth as the book of Revelation tells us we will. And yet, Lord, we know in this time as you wait, you're waiting for men to come to repentance. That you are not patient, or that you are not giving up on your promises, but you are patient waiting for all to come to repentance. So we thank you for this time of waiting. 
this time of allowing individuals to come to Christ. And we just pray if there's any here today who do not know you, God, that you would convict them of their sins, that it would become so clear and so certain in their minds the truth of these things that they would be burdened until they're right with you. And God, please save them. Please draw them to yourself. Please make them bow their knee before the, before the Messiah now before it's too late. And they'll suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. So Lord, please save sinners. We thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and bringing this great joy to us, personal salvation. In that salvation, we are so thankful. We rejoice in it. We pray that you'd make us faithful in proclaiming this good news to others. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.